This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 17th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're joined by Dimitri Daskalakis. Dimitri is an infectious disease physician with a long background in disease prevention. He served as Deputy Commissioner for the Disease Control Division of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, then moved on to the CDC, where he led the Division of HIV Prevention. Last week, he was named the White House National Monkeypox Response Deputy Coordinator, helping to lead our national strategy on combating the spread of what was recently declared a public health emergency in the United States. Dimitri, thanks for joining us. Before we move to monkeypox, I'd like to ask you about your long experience in HIV prevention. One of the striking things about the concurrent epidemics of HIV, COVID-19, and monkeypox is that each has a quite different mode of transmission. Given that, Here's what's admittedly a big question. What lessons can we take away from HIV that we can apply to these other diseases? Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I think that the lessons from HIV, there's biological lessons and also lessons around how to mitigate stigma and avoid stigma. So I'll start with the stigma part. When I first started the work in monkeypox, I actually joined the CDC response before the first case was identified in the United States. And really, it was inspiring to see a public health organization really put stigma mitigation first as messaging and strategies for communication were being developed. And so thinking back to HIV, though I was too young to be involved in 1981, you know, just the thought that as this was unfolding and it was clear that gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, even at the beginning of the outbreak, seemed to be overrepresented in the epidemiology sort of looking at the fact that they activated at CDC a bunch of folks that do HIV work to bring us in to really, you know, decide how communication was going to go and how to best sort of frame the work to the community. I think that's a really important lesson. Another important lesson from HIV is that viruses, though they are not sentient, actually are pretty clever in some ways, and that it's really important to sort of let the epidemiology and science guide you in terms of how you respond. So I think that monkeypox, especially this outbreak, is a great example, though, since it is only a piece of DNA wrapped in fat, it still has given us some really significant pivots that we've had to sort of take. So thinking about the classic monkeypox outbreak, which is something happens, zoonotic transfer to a human then you have like a strategy to ring vaccinate around the individuals with cases, sort of really having to pivot quickly into a strategy where you're not going to know all the contacts. And like, what do you do to sort of move vaccination forward in a universe of constrained resources where vaccines weren't necessarily available? So I think the other HIV lesson is like, you know, listen to the biology and listen to the epidemiology. And this is where it comes together, that stigma is actually the enemy of response because it creates false truths that then lead to people going down rabbit holes that aren't correct. So I feel like those are my lessons that I've learned from the HIV response and HIV prevention. Oh, and the other part that I've learned from HIV prevention that's part of this is that harm reduction is critical and the clearer communication you have, the better you are. So really making sure that you are communicating to folks who are potentially in harm's way in a way they understand that's frank and doesn't wait for complete data, but waits for best data and then makes sort of that leap into best practice. So I remember when we put out our safer sex guidance at CDC, it was June 6th. We didn't know very much, but definitely sort of getting ahead of it as opposed to waiting. And that, in fact, is also directly inspired by HIV and the document put out by the community in the 80s that was called How to Have Sex in an Epidemic. So we learned that lesson from the community and brought it into public health and guidance. So 
I think that's my list. I mean, I, we could go on forever. They are very different infections, but they do have like a resonance from the perspective of community. Dimitri, let me ask you about the question of stigma versus harm reduction, because those things can be at odds with one another. One of the questions that's been raised is that the media have not been so clear about the risk groups in part to try to reduce stigma. On the other hand, those risk groups have to know that they're risk groups. So how do you balance those two factors? Right. So thank you, HIV, for creating a network of individuals that we were able to go through with communication to make sure that we reach the right community. So I'll start with that. So leverage, leverage, leverage um, the right media as opposed to all the media. So that's like a really important thing that we've done. So really thinking about creating guidance that is appropriately evergreen from the perspective of folks who could be affected by monkeypox, but then really using the network that we have of community-based organizations, providers, influencers, et cetera, to get the word out to the LGBTQAI plus community, specifically gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men and trans folks. So I think that this is not only a lesson from the past, but also like another example of how public health leverages the mechanism built by HIV to be able to do better work. And so at the very beginning of the outbreak, again, being pulled in as the HIV person at CDC, we literally looked at our entire list of contacts and our entire list of folks that we reach out to and engaged with them very early on from providers to CBOs, all the way to my friends at HRSA and HAB, um, the Ryan White part, as well as HRSA, Bureau of Primary Healthcare, BIDIC, with all the FQHCs, then sort of going into the ID networks, the HIV networks, and just making sure that we get the word out in a way that is community appropriate and responsive, while also not sort of generating stigma. The balance is really delicate. And I feel like it's a tightrope that we walk every day in, in HIV and STI. And so I think that really following the path that was laid and actually learning from the lessons of the past where this was a strategy. With that said, I've seen plenty of media that I've just been like, why are you generating stigma? But what I can say is that public health and governmental public health needs to be the role model as opposed to the generator of that stigma. And I think we've done a pretty good job that we can always do better in towing that line. So, Dimitri, if I hear you correctly, not only do we have to deal with the social ramifications of a new emerging infection, but we also need to follow the science. And as Steve raised the issue of HIV, COVID-19, and now monkeypox, I think there's some important differences in the communities impacted and how they're transmitted. With HIV having a heavy sexual route of transmission, COVID-19, or really SARS-CoV-2, really a respiratory route, and now monkeypox, which may have a sexual route, but I suspect is much more a physical contact, somewhat like community-acquired MRSA. How do we think about the emerging science and how that should inform our messaging about which communities are at risk yesterday, today, and likely tomorrow? That, I think, is the question of the moment, which is that, you know, this, again, is an unprecedented outbreak of monkeypox, not like anyone that we've seen before, or at least that we know of before. And so I think that the science in terms of transmission will guide us. I think that there's a lot of great conversation happening in terms of how important a sexual transmission route through fluids is versus through contact. The science is, I think, emerging, and it's really important for us to follow. I think that thinking about not only transmission, but like really what mitigation looks like is really important too. I think the lessons, I think from COVID as well as from HIV are examples that as we learn more, it really needs to be important that we don't get mired in dogma 
and move into science. And so I'll give the example of HIV that comes to mind. You know, decades of condoms are the only way to prevent HIV or abstinence. And then all of a sudden we had PrEP. That is like a science shift that required a pretty important shift in dogma. And so I think that we need to be really nimble as the science teaches us different things and frankly, humble. Because like I said, the virus isn't a sentient, intelligent being, but like viruses do things. And like we learn things about the science and you've got to roll with the punches. And so we learn new science in terms of transmission or new strategies that work from the perspective of prevention or don't work from the strategy of prevention or treatment. We just need to be ready to shift and move and not sort of be mired in the dogma. It takes a minute to create stigma and it can last decades. It also just takes a moment to create medical dogma that you need to challenge with science. And so I think that this is no different than any other infection or condition that we deal with. And Dimitri, I think that speaks to an issue we've been struggling with over the last two years with COVID is that the science is changing rapidly because of how little we knew at the beginning of the epidemic. And this then creates a real communication challenge because it looks like we're flip-flopping, we're confused, and it plays into the hand of misinformation and disinformation. So in the context of things that are rapidly changing and rapid knowledge acquisition, how do we mitigate against that risk? I think communication is the core answer to that question. And I think that one of the things that public health sometimes is great at and sometimes is not great at is risk communication. And so really framing what you know with transparency and what you don't know is, I think, the way to go. And I think sometimes in the desire to have a perfect ivory tower of knowledge, even when there's no such thing, we sort of forget the importance of saying, at this time, this is what we know, like this could change. And so I think having a nimble approach to looking at the data and, you know, again, having the humility that you can be wrong. And sometimes when you're wrong, it has big effects on health, but that when new information emerges, you have to shift quickly. And that I think is sort of one of the lessons from COVID, which is that, you know, things may be right on Tuesday and they can be wrong on Friday, but on Tuesday, you need to foreshadow that Friday could change, even if you don't know what Friday holds. That's like one of my lessons from disease control days. I ran the measles outbreak in New York City. I was a COVID incident commander for six or seven months. I can't remember how long anymore. And the lesson really is like in risk communication, you need to foreshadow that you don't know everything. And it's okay to say you don't know everything. The only place that you have issues is when you have this sort of hubristic moment of like, this is perfect data. No such animal. So we've talked in the past about the animal rule, the mechanism that allows approval of interventions like those being used for monkeypox. It means that while we know that vaccines and drugs for treating the disease are safe, we don't actually have human efficacy data. Given the high likelihood that these interventions do work, how important is it to do trials at this point? That is a really easy answer. Very important. I feel that having really thought about these data and sort of seen the iterations, it's strong data from the safety perspective and like good data from the scientific perspective on like possible effectiveness. But we've not had the opportunity domestically to look at how this drug and vaccine function in sort of a natural challenge. Now, with that said, there were opportunities in other parts of the world. They weren't taken. And so I just want to be really clear that I'm referring to the domestic horizon. And so with this opportunity, I think that it's going to be really important for us to see how vaccine works. There is a vaccine that has some data, but we as a society have chosen not to use it. That's the ACAM 2000 vaccine because of side effects and potentially risk for auto inoculation and inoculation of others. And so we're using a vaccine that really has data that are all about 
about surrogates, correlates of immunity rather than real world challenge. And so I think studies as well as good old fashioned vaccine effectiveness surveillance together become very important to be able to understand how the vaccine functions. And same for tecoviramat, which is the drug that is currently being used to treat some cases of monkeypox. So again, it seems as if from the perspective of the data we have that it should work, given that it was tested in rabbit pox and monkeypox and animals. But now, you know, we're really giving it to humans. And so it's important for us to understand the safety as well as the effectiveness, both through the process of gathering information through its current level of approval, and then also through studies that really give us a better view into a randomized strategy to look at T-pox versus no T-pox. So I think it's critical information. And there's nothing about monkeypox that I think is good, but there is an opportunity here to be able to understand these drugs in the high potential that will continue to have monkeypox introduced and reintroduced and circulating in some populations. Dimitri, you raised the issue of the lack of testing in populations in which monkeypox has been present for years and years in Africa. I wonder what you think of the balance between bringing treatments to people who need them anyway and the benefits that we might enjoy by doing the appropriate research in the settings where these diseases are endemic. This is an important lesson, and it's not a new lesson from the perspective of diseases that we actually may not pay enough attention to or don't pay attention to outside of the U.S. that then have a global dimension. The administration is also investing in making sure that therapeutics as well as vaccines are on the horizon for other parts of the world. But I think, again, you know, it's hard to change history, but it's important to acknowledge that that is a hole in the work that we've done in terms of global public health. I think this harkens back to HIV as we look at the challenge of therapies that have a strong preclinical rationale, such as tecoviramat, where the in vitro data, the animal data, even the animal data against monkeypox as opposed to vaccinia or variola, and the question of with authorization of use, how do we then rigorously study since high-quality human data do not exist on ticoviramat, yet there's a strong rationale why it should work and should be safe. And so how do we balance the need to generate better information to help our patients have the risk-benefit information to be able to decide if this can work for them? And I know the World Health Organization and the NIH have launched trials, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials to try and answer this question. But how do you do that in the context of spread and people wanting and needing treatment? So the answer is it's a yes and, not an or but. So you have to do both things. So I think that the studies are really important and like they need to be done in a way. So, you know, I'm a big fan of surveillance data and sort of data that you get from real world experience, but there's serious limits to what can be said about that in terms of, of therapeutic. And so I think that as we try to decrease this administrative burden for providers to access TPOX or Tecoviramat for their patients, the other side of it is that we need to do like really well-designed randomized control studies so we can get that level of quality data along with what we see in real-world rollout. That I can tell you from the perspective of the coordinator role, that's what's going on. So we have this sort of like push, push, push to get studies moving so we can get randomized control data on Tecoviramat, but also like push, push, push. What can we do based on what we know to be able to lower the administrative burden of getting the drug? And so I have had a lot of interactions with the FDA before this, but wow, what a level of respect I have in terms of like the tightrope they have to walk on this. 
and how committed they are to try to figure it out. So I think it's one of my favorite experience so far of being in this response as a coordinator is getting to peek into other agencies like that. And they're really dedicated to try to make sure that we move things quickly in a way to get the drug to people faster. And then CDC really dedicated to try to make the like admin burden lower. And that's not done. It's August 17th. And so on August 17th, I can say that we continue to sort of push to see how we can make the administrative part of this less burdensome and make sure that we have the data that we need so we can look at people confidently and say, A, this works, and B, it's really safe. So Dimitri, given that, how would you advise the practitioners who are advising their patients on how to use ticoviramat or join a study that may be randomized? What advice should they have in guiding their patients' decisions? I think that this is one of those moments where you do share decision-making. I think that as a provider, it's really important to present options. If a study is available, there are people who may go in, may not. But I think giving that option is important because, I mean, there are a lot of folks who sort of from the perspective of altruism do go into studies. And I think that a lot of folks in this community have been studied for many things. It's a community that I think is very open to science, interested in science. You know, I feel like you could change that question to like, how would you advise people back in the days of prep studies? And it's the same, very similar answer, which is that people elect to go into these things, should do it obviously with complete informed consent and understanding, but then also like it's a clinical judgment as well in terms of someone being referred to a study versus um, sort of through the uh, sort of more compassionate release arm of the EAIND from the CDC to get access to the drug. So it's shared decision-making, transparency, and confidence that this community shows up. And I guess we don't know if it works or how well it works and what side effects it may have. And this would allow those data to emerge to know if it's a good thing for people in general. Yeah. And I feel like there's a tension because when you talk to folks who do it, they're like, anecdotally, this is great. And I think that we love anecdote, but I think that from the perspective of the way the drugs work, you want a bit more than anecdote to be able to support the work. And so really the effort is how fast can we get to a place that's not just anecdote to be able to make sure that we move things forward in a way that makes scientific sense. In the early days of COVID, there were certainly a lot of anecdotal reports of amazing successes with drugs, which turned out not to work at all. There's elements that are going to potentially ease access quickly, but the trials are important. It's a different data level in terms of what you learn about the drug. And we have, again, like nothing about monkeypox is good, but this is the opportunity to figure out this drug beyond non-human models. And it helps affirm a paradigm of learning as we go. And I think in HIV, that was a turning moment for the FDA and for science where we could allow compassionate release therapy before the definitive evidence that it worked. And there, there was such a high mortality in a short time period that it was clear the mandate was obvious. Here, it's not as morbid, but it's still the same paradigm of learning as we go and to do it as quickly as possible. Another clinical aspect is, and I think CDC released a really good letter about this, uh, Dear Colleague letter, that like, TPOX access is really important. Tecoviramet access is really important, but also pain control because this is a really morbid disease for some people. And this isn't something abstract for me. I've had so many friends who've had it and friends who've had really bad rectal infections with this. And it's really important to use all the tools in the toolkit. TPOX is one of them, but it's not the only one in terms of making sure that you are addressing symptoms as well as potentially giving an antiviral that may have activity and appears to be safe. I want to go back to an issue you raised earlier, which is the availability of these interventions. 
So starting with vaccines, there are limited supplies. How do you think about setting guidelines for their use? So I think CDC's clinical considerations about this, the interim clinical considerations are really good. I think that one of the tensions always with vaccines is creating guidelines and guidance for how it's used, but also not creating barriers for people to get the vaccine. So I will conjure something from COVID that everyone will remember, which is people living with HIV qualified for COVID vaccine fairly early on. And for a patch there, we had providers and sometimes pharmacists who were asking for proof of HIV status and potentially even CD4 counts and viral loads, which really short circuits this access element of vaccine. And so, you know, I think that that is a lesson that we saw in COVID and one that I think we don't want to repeat in monkeypox. So I think prioritizing people with immunocompromised becomes a bit easier when access increases. And I think we have some really good pathways to increase access. You know, I think the limited supply is changing with a couple of interventions, like lots of domains of them. So a increased production and more vaccine coming to the U.S. is one, but also the uh, intradermal dosing strategy that potentially increases one vial from a single dose to five with data that demonstrates serological equivalence in terms of antibodies, as well as some cellular immune data that also demonstrates near equivalence, except for maybe interferon gamma release, which I think is the place where there may be a little bit less equivalence with the intradermal route. And then safety data, including a study that's in German of over 7,000 people who received this vaccine intradermally. So I think we have strategies that really allow us to increase access. And that, I think, is going to allow us to make sure that the right populations get this vaccine. Also, communication, communication, communication. So really working through our Ryan White providers and a lot of networks of providers that focus on people living with HIV as an example has been really important. I think that as we see vaccine access becoming more open, I think that it's going to be easier to make sure that all the folks who need to get vaccinated get vaccinated. The challenge now is going to be we have to really support confidence in the vaccine. I think we all know the experience that the early adopters are the easy ones. And so this is where the fun begins where we have to really make sure that we get deeper into the community, build confidence in this vaccination, and make sure that we provide it in a way that is culturally competent and non-stigmatizing, which is challenging when your vaccine requires you to disclose that you're an MSM and also that you might have multiple or anonymous partners. So I think that really towing that line and figuring out what equity strategies exist to get this out there, including making sure that folks who are vaccinated are able to discuss what they've done sort of publicly, especially folks that people listen to. So that's a long-winded question, but I think access is our problem. And I think that with that getting resolved, we're going to see a clearer path to making sure the right folks get vaccinated. So Dimitri, given that the authorization for the lower dose of vaccine, five-fold lower dose, how do we communicate to our providers why the lower dose is just as appropriate as the higher dose. It can be perceived as confusing. Yep. So having been through all the data reviews and all of that, I really like to reframe the dosing. It's the correct intradermal dose. It's not a lower dose. And so I think if you look at other vaccines, studies that have been done in like flu and hepatitis B and other vaccines that can be given sort of in their standard IM route or in the intradermal route. And when you do that, to get similar immune responses, you have to lower the dose because you don't want to give 0.5 milliliters of anything in the intradermal route. That's not possible. And so the way that that layer works with immune cells that are doing their job and the dose necessary, it's not about a lower dose. It's about the right dose for intradermal. And so given that the data support 
support that this lower volume of vaccine is feasible to create a similar immune response, then that intradermal dose is our path to really making sure that more vaccines get in. I was going to say arms, but I guess I should say forearms. Yeah. So that's how I've really been trying to frame it to people when we talk about it. It's not a lower dose. It's the right dose for this group. To follow up on that, Dimitri, and you've already referred to this, with the caveats that you raised about investigating the effects of ticaviramat, do you see access becoming easier than it is now? It is a gigantic amount of paperwork at this point. I think the answer is this is one of those watch this space because there's so much energy happening across agencies to figure out how to make access easier while not compromising what we need to be able to move, you know, TPOX into a more evidence-based intervention. So CDC is constantly looking at that paperwork to figure out how to reduce it. I think they made a quantum leap in terms of the reduction, but it still is work. And so I think really looking at like, what is the strategy to ease access while not compromising data is really where the balance is. And that's really like the remarkable work that's happening inside agencies. And it's a priority. So I think that the main answer is it's going to shift as quickly as it can, which I think is a realistic answer. And I think just along the equity considerations, It is hard to advocate for experimental therapies to be manufactured and provided globally without data benefit and safety. And so if we want to encourage global access to these therapies, we need high quality data for agencies and governments to make the investment into this therapy for their communities. And so I do worry that without high quality data, we're not going to be able to push the availability elsewhere in the world. I agree. I mean, I think people watch us very closely in the U.S. And I think that that's true both for like therapeutics and vaccine. So I think that your point is right. And that like what we do will end up influencing a lot of what happens around the globe. Dimitri, you've worked in public health at levels ranging from local to international. Even within the federal government, the response to outbreaks is spread over many agencies, including places like the CDC, the FDA, NIH. How do you think about your role at what's basically a new agency at the White House? I'll start by saying for someone who's worked in public health, in the public health lane specifically, this is amazing from the perspective of being able to sort of look and work with agencies in a very different way. I think that the title is exactly what I do. So I'm a coordinator. So really trying to make sure that we harmonize across agencies. When Bob Fenton or I see something that sort of doesn't make sense or contradicts, not because they're not doing great work, but just because everyone's in their lane, we get to sort of be the silo busters from the perspective of putting things together. And so I think that that's like what the main role is. And I think that as the outbreak grew in size, you know, I think that there's precedent with, for instance, like Ebola, et cetera, that when something gets to a sort of level of consequence that's important with a certain level of epidemiologic concern, it makes sense to have folks who are helping out, coordinating, who live outside the agencies, but have like good deep tentacles into the agencies to make sure that things are moving in a coordinated and efficient fashion. I think if you ask Bob Benton the same question, he would give the same answer. I think that's what our role is. And that's what it's been in the short time that we've been doing it, really identifying ways to sort of harmonize the good work that's happening across agencies and also, you know, identify places where we have to say, gee, we really want to press on that accelerator a little bit faster. Okay. I have a much less sophisticated question, Dimitri. So you create a new office at the White House. There are lots of offices at the White House. Like, where do they stick you? <laughs> Wherever we fit is the answer. No. So I think, uh, is that a space question or is that like a... a, it, it's, a I guess a, it's a little of both. Like there's an org chart, there's 
space. There's everything. Well, right near the cafe is the right answer. No. So um, um, the gift shop by the gift shop. So um, this is a really interesting structure. We're pulling elements from multiple teams in the White House to pull together this sort of coordinating force. And so you know, the president, when Bob and I were appointed, told us that we have at our disposal the resources that we need to be able to accelerate the end of this outbreak. And so that's really how we've been treated at the White House, which is like, tell us what you need and like, you know, what you're missing in your sort of functionality and we'll fill it in. And I think the other exciting part is, and this is like, you know, working with someone from FEMA like Bob is like literally like you would be surprised how well we go together, given that we have completely different backgrounds. But it's really great to see that the strategy is not to fortress up, but to open up and sort of really bring the agencies and other folks into the White House. So we have a truly team effort that's coordinated by the cell. So we sort of live like working with our friends at NSC, our friends in the COVID response team, and a lot of other elements in the White House in terms of where we pull policy support and communication support, et cetera. And then we have correlates in the agency, like folks who represent our different buckets. So our testing, treatment, vaccine, and engagement buckets. So we pull folks from the agencies as well who live in their agency still, but interact with us very directly and our, our points of contact to make sure that we move things forward. So I've got to say the speed with which an office can be born at the White House at this level of government with an emergency is pretty amazing. So Dimitri, as you say, cutting across different agencies and getting them to work together and focus on the problem is so important. But your roots are in community health. New York City Board of Health, and how do you deliver to your community? Isn't this really a local public health problem supported by central resources? And how, given the degradation of support for local public health over decades, how do you help rebuild that to enable them to respond to this and other epidemics which are inevitable? I think that's a question that is way beyond my office here with Bob, but I think that really, you know, having come up from local public health the responses are hyperlocal, but what you need when you're at local public health is clear information, clear guidance and direction, and sort of scientific support from the federal government. And so I think that also thinking about what resources are needed and looking at what needs to be reprogrammed, like what we need to sort of ask for in the future from potential supplements, all of that is really with the goal of trying to make sure that we as the federal government are actually supporting the work on the ground. But no one knows their jurisdiction better than the jurisdiction, but they need information and guidance from us to be able to support work as opposed to sort of creating it from scratch without the evidence level or data level that we may have. So, you know, I think that our role at this level, whether it's agencies like CDC or the White House, is really making sure that we listen to the local jurisdictions and the community and that we provide what's needed to be able to really facilitate the work on the ground. So I think what you asked, your question answered itself. This is a local event, but definitely requires a higher level support to be able to sort of fuel that event with the information and resources needed to be able to achieve the goals. So I think this is an opportunity to help rebuild local public health in a way that is responsive to an immediate threat. I think that's a terrific approach. I agree. Thank you, Dimitri, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.